0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Meaning of Life TV. Uh, my name is Arya Cohen-Wade and I host a show on uh, Meaning of Life sister site, uh, blogging has to be called Culturally Determined. Uh, but today we're on Meaning of Life and my guest is Catherine Nichols. Catherine, could you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, hi, i um... I don't know what else to say. I'm Catherine Nichols. I'm a writer. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. Um, our topic today is an essay you wrote in the online magazine Eon, um, which is actually spelled A-E-O-N, uh, but we'll include the link uh, in the links below. And the headline is, The Good Guy, Bad Guy Myth." Uh, subhead pop culture today is obsessed with the battle between good and evil. Traditional folk tales never were. What changed? Um, so can you kind of outline the argument of your piece and also talk about why you were, why uh, you were interested in, in exploring this topic?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that there's this, um, oh, there's a lot of ways we could start. There's this group of, um, of like pop culture you know, I don't even want to, it's like movies, books, comics, um, that all have, um, you know, like Star Wars is sort of based on the, uh, Joseph Campbell hero myth. Um, uh, uh Joseph Campbell and George Lucas talk about a lot when it first came out. And, uh-huh. uh, uh, Tolkien was famously, you know, um, a scholar of old English, um, epics and uh, language and everything, there's this idea that these things are based in these kind of um, ancient folkloric traditions and they have um, all these old ancient tropes and they have this feeling of being kind of uh timeless, universal fight of good versus evil. Um, and uh, I was... Um, it was actually a kid who asked me, was reading some Norse myths, and said, um, so is Thor a good guy or a bad guy in this? And I was just like, no, that that's wrong. It's like a category error. It's like Thor is a god. Thor mm-hmm. is something so much bigger than a good guy or a bad guy. But um, if you read Marvel, Thor has to be worthy to hold his hammer, you know, that there's, there's some kind of moral requirement um, and sense that he's standing up for his values. Um, And I was thinking, not only does Thor not stand up for his values in, you know, the prose Edda, the poetic Edda, um, but I could not think of any ancient story, like whether it's, you know, the Iliad or uh, Three Little Pigs or Cinderella, where... um, anybody stands up for their values at all. Uh-huh. Uh, it seems like values uh, are just never a point of conflict um, uh, in any of these old stories. And even if you say, you can put things in in a kind of, um, like a kind of surface way, like say, oh, well, Cinderella was as good as she was beautiful, and uh-huh. that's what she she wins. But there's no actual part of the story where her goodness has any causal power to change the outcomes. Like, for her to win, she only has to be beautiful. Uh-huh. And then there's uh-huh. versions where she's tricky and versions where she's obedient and, you know. Um, but, like, in you know, to make her into a modern good guy, Walt Disney had to give her all these uh, little mice and birds, these <laughs> little friends who would come and do things, and they'd, like, the stepmother locks her up and they get the key and stuff. The... That's what you have to do to the story of Cinderella to make her ostensible goodness have any power to affect the ending. Um, So I started thinking, so why do we have these stories about people who are standing up for their values and why is that so closely associated with folklore? Um, And uh, so I just did a bunch of research and um, I found that that idea came up very closely with the rise of nationalism in the Enlightenment, modern nationalism, where um, the idea of the nation is that, you know, you'd have values. Like, to be an American, you're sort of signing up for American values in theory rather than being connected by um, an ethnicity or, you know, some agreement about land use or... Something like that. That there's the idea that we all value the constitution or something like that, uh-huh. um, and um, that's a very new concept of the nation, um, and um, and it has this mythology associated with it, which is that um, that our stories of conflict are incredibly reliably stories of conflict. Of values rather than conflict over resources or, um, excuse me, um, or dinner. All the other things that people have conflicts over in in older stories. Um, anyway, so the more the more I did this research, the more I found that. Um, it feels a lot like it's a moral um, it's a moral question um whether you're a good guy or a bad guy um, but it it's not rooted in a moral vision it's rooted in a political vision of of nationalism uh of of specifically binding together a large group um sort of with with something a story that's that's kind of thicker than blood mm-hmm. um,
0: and, and you see the Grimm brothers as kind of like the, a key turning point in, uh, in this transformation of, of focal art tales.
1: Yeah. Um, I, because an essay and not a book, I think, um, in some ways the Grimm brothers, um, they're definitely not the only ones. I think they're, they were a, a, a turning point, but, um, the Joseph Ritson um, version of Robin Hood, which is the first Robin Hood in which he robs from the rich to give to the poor, which was also coming up at this exact same time. That's even slightly before the Grimm brothers. So like, I, I just want to be very clear that I don't think that they're the only people who were starting to use folklore um, in this kind of moralistic, nationalistic way, but they were, um, I think they were very influential um, in our thinking of, Stories like Cinderella as being something that's about um, a good person versus a bad person as opposed to just people fighting yeah uh, so
0: so your essay you made me think back on like you know in the Iliad um, who you know were I, I guess we're supposed to root for uh, the Greeks of the Achaeans, um, depending on the translation. And, but, you know, Achilles is the hero of the Iliad, but he's a total asshole. And th- the only admirable thing about him is, like, his fighting ability.
1: Yeah. And, like, if you had to choose a good guy, it's like, you'd probably choose, like, Hector before you choose Achilles. But he's... It's just... um it's just a much more complex story in terms of um, the causes and effects of actions. It's like what's at stake for each person, what feelings they're capable of feeling. Um, and the,
0: and, and the, oh, the oh, Iliad ends with the desecration of um, Hector's body. Which is not you know not a fairy tale ending for um for 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 anyone,
1: yeah, but it, and then it's also like the the grief of his father. it's like there's something so humane about the storytelling that doesn't it that doesn't desecrate anyone. it's like everyone is fully human, they've all got you know terrible weaknesses and overwhelming feelings and um and strengths and, and moments of, of nobility um because there isn't this this idea that they have to each symbolize an emotion or a value like you know if you uh, um one um thing that good guys and bad guys stories have um often is that people can switch sides based on like a change of heart like if they have you know, if if Darth Vader stops feeling angry and starts feeling love, he will stop being a bad guy and switch to Luke Skywalker's team in this in this war they're having. Um, and you just think um, while you're watching Star Wars, you're like, oh, I'm I'm watching kind of this beautiful human moment between father and son. But then, if you compare that to um, something like the Iliad, you see that the war they're having never prevents anyone in that story from having a full range of human emotions. But the bad, the good guys, bad guys filter, like if you're telling a good guys, bad guys story, you're sort of inherently limiting all the good guys to the kinds of feelings that good guys would have, the kind of tactics and the kind of, you know, um, I guess level of Hatred or or whatever it is that um, that each side represents, and that the bad guys, if they were truly loving, if they truly valued their children or human life or whatever, they wouldn't be bad guys. Um, which is um, it's kind of a morally disastrous way to think. You uh-huh. know, it's like like when you you think like, well, what's the human version of this? Like, is there an actual real life? world in which um people like actually truly have no loyalty on one side of a fight and like just casually um you know punish their own allies and it's like no that's that's ridiculous like everyone's human on both sides of every fight it doesn't mean that the fights aren't brutal it just means that it's never actually a fight of one team that has loyalty and the other team that has no loyalty
0: yeah, there's a lot of interesting threads in there. Um, one thing you made me think was, uh, um, you know, it, it would be the, the, Darth Vader coming over to the good side, the light side, or, um, uh, Professor Snape in Harry Potter actually being a good guy if you think it was a bad guy. Yeah, this has no, like, parallel in the real world. <laughs> um, it's not like Kim yeah, Jong Un is it's going, like it just does not exist. is going to realize the error of his ways and, you know, dedicate himself to the forces of good. And um, another thread is that, you know, in the Iliad, um, maybe the the analog for the... for, like, kind of Darth Vader's moment of redemption is, like, Priam's story and the humanizing grief that we see him display for his son Hector, um, which would be very hard to have. You can't imagine Soramon. Um or uh you know some other big big bad um kind of retaining their enemy status while still being presented with humanity be like if they were presented with humanity, that means they Did they, they saw sides? they saw the light were <laughs> coming to the good side
1: exactly, and that's why I think like this that's why you know i just, I just think that this is so um that they feel like they're teaching us better morals, but they're actually preventing us from understanding. I don't, I don't really think people don't understand, you know, like the full moral engagement of human life. But I think that while your mindset is in this good guy, bad guy, while you're thinking in those terms, you couldn't have a fully human bad guy that has like the full range of of the kinds of feelings that good guys would have who wouldn't switch sides because like, that's what the sides mean that the, the terms of engagement are that they have different moral qualities, Um, which is, you know, that's, that's what enlightenment era nationalism was all about is trying to figure out what moral qualities certain groups of people have. And, you know, when you look at the difference between ancient slavery and American slavery, one of the big differences is the idea that, you know, that a certain group of people, um, American slaves had certain moral qualities that meant that they needed to be locked up. Um, and that's inside the story. That's, um, that's part of the sort of like the logical, you know, um, entailment, I guess, of this story. Um, is that, that groups of people rather than individuals have moral qualities, and and if people on the other side of whatever fence had um, the same moral qualities that you pride yourself on, they wouldn't be there. They would have joined your team a long time ago. Um, I mean, I I feel like. Um, like, a little bad saying that when, you know, Black Panther has just come out and, like, I definitely want to go see it. But at the same time, like, I think this idea has a lot of potential for um, abuse that we've seen, you know, pretty consistently since people have been, been using it.
0: Yeah. Um So there's a deep human urge to um, identify yourself with part of a tribe and then police the boundaries of the tribe. And, uh, see, and then see your own tribe as the good ones and see the other tribe as the bad ones. So that's in some ways. Well, that's but, the
1: question. Is I don't know that people have always seen the other tribe as the bad ones. I mean, I think people have always seen the other tribe as adversaries, definitely, but I don't know that people have always seen the other tribe as having, as lacking. As inherently
0: having bad moral and, qualities. Yeah. I'll, yeah, it's an interesting that's distinction. It's reflected in these stories anyway. Um, okay. So there's, okay. I think there's an, there's an instinct and I'm drawing on some of the writings of, um, my boss here at Meaning of Life TV and blogging as Robert Wright in books like Moral Animal and Non-Zero, um, to put your, put yourself in a tribe and then see who is an ally and who is not an ally. And those often come along tribal boundaries and probably derive from like the, you know, evolutionary psychology view of, uh, you know, small human groups, um, in like hunter-gatherer societies. And then the other group is a threat. And so we like tell a story about how it's okay <laughs> to kill them, um, because of something, um, some like thing about them that's not as good as, as our tribe. Does that make sense?
1: You know, I think it, I think it does. I think that, um, I think when you're talking about a nation that's so much larger than any kinship group, I think that that's when there's something wrong with the people outside our group. Um, That's when that has to really begin. Because I think that if you're talking about, um, you know, these much smaller nations, I don't think you need that level of persuasion to get people to suit up and join The army, you know, like I don't think that um, – or at least it doesn't seem like you do because after all, you know, in in the Iliad, to go back to that one, there isn't a moral difference between the two sides. Nobody considers that there's a moral difference between the two sides. But the reason that they're on opposite sides is just a network of agreements and loyalties and family um, uh, bonds that, you know – Marriage and, and stuff like that,
0: um, and they don't. And, and, there's, and there's gods who are re- intervening on either side. Um, so mm-hmm. because of the um, you know multiplicity of, of gods in uh, Greek mythology, uh, some I, I don't remember the split, but some are you know I think I guess Athena was was with Odys- Odysseus, and uh, maybe Ares was uh, was with uh, the Trojans, and so.
1: Yeah, and they had, they had, uh, Venus, I think, with, um, Aeneas, right? I, I'm not, I don't want to get it all wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, I haven't
0: delved into Greek mythology in about 10 years, so I might be misremembering some of this. Um, how does, so getting back to this idea that, like, the, the heroes in the ancient epics were not moral exemplars, um, you know, Odysseus is, he that's more essentially like a hero story like it focuses on just him I suppose the Iliad which is focusing on a lot of different characters and and he has you know myriad adventures and he has a goal of getting back to his homeland of Ithaca um but when you read the his his admirable trait his heroic trait is like his trickiness and wiliness which is not again not you know, maybe that's like Donald Trump's moral trait as well. (laughs) is his wiliness. not, not an absolute good. Like he's always like kind to animals or something that, uh, that we can all get behind.
1: Yeah. But, um, I think so, um, if you take away the idea that you should learn values or that your identity comes from your values, um, or, the, you know, the stories need to teach you how to have values. If you just think the whole value, sorry, value, the whole worth of the story, the importance of the story, it just comes from, is this interesting? Um, I think a lot of folklore, including these ancient epics, like a lot of it comes out, comes right from that. It's just like, well, it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know, Um it's more interesting to tell versions of Cinderella in which she's tricky, in which she's, you know, disobedient and, you know, sometimes obedient, sometimes disobedient. It's more interesting if you tell more different versions. Um It's more interesting if you tell stories about the peasant who got a sausage stuck to her nose. You know, like that's funny and um I think the idea that we each need to have a personal code of values and that it's an important part of our identity that we need to like pass on to the children like our unique personal code of values and that I think is also a let's say a post printing press kind of idea um, that you know it's probably it existed before but I don't think that it was as dominant as it is now Um, I think the idea that stories need to teach is probably um, minor in the more distant past compared to stories being entertaining
0: Uh
1: Um, and like cool, you know, (laughs) like it's fun to hang out with Odysseus Um, and if, if everybody is so tightly interdependent for all of their survival and their ideas and their conversation, everything in your society, um, you don't necessarily need to take time out to teach. These are our group values. Like that's pretty much like what everyone's just going to absorb just by, by living. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Something that you're, A hinge point that you don't mention that I wanted your perspective on in your essay is um, World War II as the thing that has taught us that there's a good side and a bad side to all conflicts. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, the original version of this essay was pretty much exactly twice as long as the version (laughs) I had. So much to say about World War II. Um, so um, ah, it really changed a lot about this form of storytelling. Like there are a lot of changes. Um, the, like the mass culture, good guys, bad guys story changed in a lot of ways, um, including having multiple characters come together for a single moral action like a, an action that has a single meaning that it would take multiple characters to carry out like the fellowship of the ring. No one character is able to destroy the ring, but the group of them are. Um, and that's the kind of trope that you just don't see in earlier stories. Like, um, you know, in the wizard of Oz, it's like, it's ultimately just Dorothy that defeats the wizard and the witch and goes home. And the other plots of the, um, you know, the cowardly lion and the, Ten man and everything; those are just independent. They don't. It doesn't matter to her plot whether they win or not. Um, and then that changes. That that changes right at the uh, World War Two mark, where suddenly, you know, virtually all the stories are about people coming together and cooperating for a single moral action. Um, but the other thing. About it is, if you look at good guy values, um, there's nothing in there that Nazis would not believe about themselves. Like, you can absolutely tell yourself the story that you're a good guy on any side of any conflict, Um, which is why it works. You know, like, if you, you know, like, good guys, the, the team always has, like, they always have some, you know, multiplicity, like... You have like Luke Skywalker type, you have the Han solo type, you have elves, you have dwarves, you know whatever it is. it's always like a bunch of um, raggedy misfits coming together um, everyone always believes that the people on their own team are the the one the the real individuals, and um the people on the other team are all just like you know forcing everyone into. Conformity, um, but also they have no loyalty, um, and that is absolutely how Nazis talk about what they're doing. You know, like it's just a very persuasive way of talking about either side of any conflict. Mm-hmm.
0: Have, um, have you seen the? Um, it's a skit from some British skit show. I don't know the origin, um, but it, it's called "Are We the Baddies?" Or at least that's kind of how people talk about it online. Have you seen that?
1: Um. I feel like I have but I don't remember it very clearly.
0: So you ha- so there's it's British comedians and they're playing like uh Nazi officers and oh, they're kind yeah. of standing around and they're wearing the full uniforms with like the death head, you know, insignia's on it and one of them is in a very kind of nerdy voice turns to the other one and says like have you ever thought maybe we're the baddies? And you know, it's resonant. I think I've discussed this, I discussed this on a, on my um, on culturally determined with um one. I talked to Christopher Blackman also, we talked about this because yeah, no one is like, maybe except for serial killers or, or true soci- sociopaths, no one is like, well, I'm the bad one in this situation. Yeah. You know, everyone always thinks that what they're doing is good and, and the mind is able to come up with reasons to justify the actions we're taking.
1: Well, and I think it's even in the good guys, bad guys story that, um, that good guys always forgive people on their own team for whatever terrible things they do. Um, like you would never have Luke Skywalker, you know, he's, he's got Darth Vader there dying and just being like, Oh, sorry, son. I love you after all. And Luke Skywalker is never going to be like, you blew up a planet you horrible <laughs> person. Like, can we talk about restorative justice or something? You know, um, like it's the whole plot of, you know, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is it's like her boyfriends like kill her friends regularly. And she's <laughs> like, oh, you know, well, bygones and bygones, you know. Um, it's like the very essence of a bad guy is that he will punish people on his own team for transgressions that will inevitably seem petty. And the very essence of a good guy, you know, like in the new, the new Star Wars is Princess Leia, or General Leia, sorry. Um, it's like, what she does is believe that her son will be forgivable. Like what she does is say, reach out to him, um, and not hold him, you know, accountable. And like bad guys, it's like, how do you know they're bad? It's like, well, they're out there strangling people all the time, you know, they're, they're punishing people on their own team. And um, I, you know, like every time anything horrifying politically happens. And I think surely somebody on this person's team is going to say, this is horrific. You've got to like, this is not okay. And I think, how would that even feel? Like, how does it even feel to say like well i'm i'm giving this person a pass cuz they're on my own team and i think it's what we do in every single movie is rehearse that feeling of like well this person's on my own team so it's okay whatever they're doing
0: yeah this is a, this is a psychological phenomenon i believe it's called the fundamental attribution error um which is like you know, if someone is on your side and they do something not so good, you're probably thinking, well, maybe they didn't have their coffee that day or, they, you know, they were in a rush or, you know, you know, that was just an exception. Surely they're basically a good person. If your tribal enemy does something bad, uh, you think, well, that's just their true essence coming, you know, coming through and that's who they really are.
1: Exactly. But if that were universal, timeless human nature, I think that we'd see it in a lot more stories that predate, you know, the enlightenment. I think that 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 went from being like some little thing that we think about sometimes to being like a major part of our everyday, you know, wake up, pour a cup of coffee, and forgive your allies for, you know, (laughs) horrific um, crimes because... um, it's such a huge part of our storytelling now and it just does not appear in our older things. Um, you know, like there's, there's such, um, there's so much clarity in some of these old stories. Like, you know, you could look at Shakespeare and people in Shakespeare are not constantly forgiving their allies. For things that that they would judge their opponents for, it's like it's just a slightly different moral texture than we have in our in our current um, stories.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think we're ever going to get beyond um, Shakespearean complexity when it comes to who's a hero, who's a villain. Um, we could talk about this for for hours. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. um, Shylock is a super sympathetic villain. Um who in the end is forced to uh, convert to Christianity. Iago is the most compelling character in uh, Othello, uh, but remains, but is, does seem to be, has motiveless malignity, uh, <laughs> which is someone, that was someone's term, um, for why Iago uh, hated Othello. You never really know why. And he uh, says, when he's captured in the end, he says, I'll bite his tongue and never, yeah. never speak again. Um, yeah, these are more definitely more complex villains than than Darth that's, Vader.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I, um, or agreeing, I'm agreeing because I think um, like when you look at the ethical richness of the texture of these stories, um, you know, I think that Merchant of Venice is one of the only ones that comes close to having like a you know values based good guy bad guy thing where, you know, um, Jessica does switch sides when she has a change of heart. And there's this sense that it's like the values are sort of what carries the day in the end, rather than just like a person winning in a personal way. Um, but, um, it's still, as you said, it's like, it's so much more, it's just like a much richer texture than even when we look at, you know, pretty complex good guy, bad guy texts.
0: Um,
1: there's just, like, this flattening of everything. Like, everything is just in the thumbs-up or thumbs-down. Good guy, bad guy. And, like, everything else within those categories. It's, like, it's not going to matter that much. Like, the only thing that really matters is which side of of this war that's actually not between people. It's between, like, symbols of goodness and badness. Um, And, you know, it actually, like, it dissuades you from reflecting on the meaning of your actions because like if you were to change your mind about something, then you'd immediately like switch sides of a war. You'd give up your friends, you'd give comfort to your enemies, you know, like all of these, these things like it's so sort of disastrous to change your mind about something in this, in the good guy, bad guy universe. Um, that seems like that's actually the opposite of, of like ethical deliberation.
0: Yeah, um one thought you're, this is prompting me is like one of the reasons that comic book movies have this um like weird sameness to them is like the finale has to be some giant CGI battle and like one the way they often do that is like faceless hordes of villains fighting against our heroes and so like In Avengers, I'm a big comic book movie fan, even though most of them aren't very very good. In Avengers 1, it's Loki and his army of, like, alien gods who are coming to fight. In Avengers 2, it's Ultron and his army of robots, evil robots who are coming to fight. It looks like in Avengers 3, it's gonna be aliens again. And the trailer shows all of our heroes, like, running across a giant field to, like, fight hordes of anonymous bad guys. So there's gonna be another one. In Lord of the Rings, it's the orcs. In Star Wars, it's the stormtroopers. Yeah. So when they twist this, that's what I guess more interesting. Like uh, Wonder Woman, which is one of the best comic book movies that's come out in the past couple of years. Um, it's her protecting people from the like the most thrilling scene in Wonder Woman is when she crosses no man's yeah. land, and it's her using her shield um, to protect innocent people from the German onslaught. So I mean but you we're not and then the, the big fight in the end, the spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, um I've it's, seen it. it turns out that um uh she's actually fighting a fellow god, um uh the god Ares. And so there's but that that CGI you know, craziness is not as interesting as I don't know, this thing on a more human scale where it's like one one person and she's more like defending then attacking the nameless hordes. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this, but
1: (laughs) well, so I thought that scene was really interesting because I was, you know, I was working on a draft of this essay when I watched that movie. So I was sort of like keyed into every time a hero starts or a villain starts monologuing about what they're really here for, you know, because that's when they do their little statement of values. Like, here's what I symbolize. Here's what you will be defeating when you defeat me um and um which is again not something that would ever show up you know pre-enlightenment because people didn't all symbolize values but um uh the the thing that that she's fighting for is this idea that that you should forgive humans for all the um, atrocities they commit during wartime she's like well i still love humans even though um, they're terrible and um, and it seemed to me like pretty clear, going like as she's finishing up World War one and she's you know it's like World War Two is around the corner, and you know that that's kind of like what she's say what she's talking about is like we're about to have World War two, and it's gonna be just fucking awful um
0: but and, and, um, and it's to interrupt, but it's an inter- they they didn't have to set the movie during World War One because the yeah. character was created like I think in the thirties, um, yeah. but the original characterization was not necessarily a world war one story. So they made a conscious choice to do that instead of going back to world war two, which is, you know, captain America comes out of world war two. We've seen 10 million World War two movies, but a lot fewer <laughs> world war one movies.
1: Yeah. I, I liked it as an artistic choice. I, I thought it was interesting. Um, I just thought that it's, amazing how frequently this idea of good guys forgiving their allies for atrocities is like that. That's kind of where the movie hinges. Mm -hmm. It's like, whether that's, you know, um, the fellowship of the ring being, you know, that it turns out they were right to, um, kind of bet on Gollum, um, or to, um, you know, I guess, um, Having just watched The Last Jedi, there's a whole bunch of, you know, stuff where it's like, the bad guys punish, the good guys forgive, that's like the difference, and that's why the good guys win. This is always like a thing that I look for in these stories is, when somebody says like, this person represents goodness, the question is, what do they do that has causal power in the story? And it's just about always that the good guys will forgive someone for doing something bad. Um, or that they'll in general be, like they'll allow more misbehavior on their team than the bad guys will. Uh Uh, uh, I mean, just to go back to Shakespeare, for instance, like if you look at the exact changes that um, Disney made to Hamlet to make it into the Lion King, it's like that's like an object lesson in exactly what the difference is between good guy, bad guy narratives and like what came before. Because it's like, um, Simba, like, definitely does not kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> you know? um, he kind of, like, allows, you know, like, more different people on his team. There are, like, more different kinds of characters on his team, whereas Scar, it's like, he didn't just, um, you know, murder uh his his brother the king he actually is like trying to turn the entire country into a totalitarian death cult and it's like everyone has to march in lines now and he's like disrupting the actual cycle of birth versus death you know which is like not something that that was on Hamlet's plate. Like he didn't have to reestablish the series of birth and death, you know? Um,
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. This is, this is a very, uh, this is a very interesting line. Maybe we could do a whole nother conversation on this. I feel like, but yeah. And there's no, Oh my gosh. Yeah. This
1: part of my essay got cut. Let me tell you.
0: (laughs) There's no, um, I mean, when we think about Hamlet, there's no sense that, well, is Claudius a bad, a bad King? Uh, He carouses a lot. He sleeps with his uh, sister-in-law. But it doesn't but no, seem like he's, he's really doing that he's bad not. of a job. And you can't, and certainly Hamlet would not be a good king. Uh, yeah, that's not why
1: you're interested. He's you're not by indecision. waiting for Denmark to finally have like somebody who represents goodness at the helm of the
0: ship. But then Fortinbras comes in and Fortinbras is the idealized leader and his, uh, him coming in at the end and reestablishing order in Denmark is kind of like a, um, yeah yeah the 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 victory of the good over all the craziness that's happened it doesn't
1: win because he's good it's like again this is sort of like my causal power thing where it's like you can you can say that someone's good but unless they have actions that cause things to happen in the story it's sort of just decorative It's like you could say, like, oh, Sleeping Beauty is good. It's like, well, what does she do that's good? You know, like, what kind of goodness does she represent? And could you just switch that? It's like, oh, she's obedient. No, now she's feisty. But it doesn't change anything in the story in terms of actual events, you know. Um, And I think that that's the, you know, that there's nothing that Fortinbras does in um, Hamlet that makes his orderliness have any causal power, really. Right. It's well, like, he displays it's military... Kind of Hamlet does. He, he,
0: yeah, yeah, he displays military fortitude, and his name is Fortinbras, and there's yes. that, the late soliloquy where Hamlet is is on the battlefield um, and talks about, you know, the... Uh, uh, I don't want to misquote, misquote it, because I won't get it right. But, yeah, it, it, this is this is interesting and maybe deserves a second conversation. Um... Have you read um, Paul Fussell's The Great War and Modern Memory? No. Uh, you're, that, well, the way this conversation is going made me think about this. It's a very interesting book. I recommend it to all of our viewers and listeners. Um, it's an analysis of of literature in the pre-World War I during the work by artists and poets um, Oh my gosh,
1: in, I should really read that. Who are in World War I, <laughs> I and,
0: really and afterwards. And it talks about um it's a very interesting book. Uh kind of the shattering of illusions that World War One and Mechanized Warfare brought about and there used to be these ideas of valor and um you know, the charge of the light brigade and all the this romance surrounding war and then the like insane change like the change in the level of carnage, the level of psychological like the
1: Wilfred Owen type yes. change level of um fascination with these tropes of, of glorious warfare.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they let, you know, led to a lot of disillusionment and, uh, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating study. So the, it's called the great war modern memory. Um, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I feel like there was one more thing I wanted to, um, Oh, yeah, this was the last thing, and that was, like, when people are talking about their memories of World War II as being this amazing values fight, I think um, the number of countries that got involved in it um, for values reasons and not, say, Hitler just invaded me reasons, um, it looks to me like there's another you know, it's like explanatorily complete to, to not say, um, that it was essentially about values. Like you could say, this is about resources. Um, this is about who's attacking whom. Um, and there's so many instances where people have, um, pulled off genocides, um, without starting world wars. Um, that, uh, I think that the values story is very good for getting everyone fired up um, and getting everyone to, you know, to sign up for the army but I don't think it's necessarily a complete explanation of why any country would join the fight if they weren't already in it yeah um, you know and I think that you know like if if trade were all going well everyone would just be like oh we kind of hate our neighbors. Oh, they're doing kind of gross stuff, but we're going to look the other way. Um, it's like, I don't know, maybe that's cynical, but um,
0: yeah, this is kind of the uh, people's history of the United States view of like U.S. U.S. actions throughout history is, you know, are, the, are they motivated by principles and trying to do the right thing? Or is it just this was economically advantageous and this is a way to screw over the workers? I mean, like it's it's super complicated in World War One you had this uh, bizarre alliance system that meant that you know, the the assassination of the Archduke led to the rearmament on Russia, which led yeah, to yeah, the Austro- all like Yeah, and then in World War Two you had um you know the you had a similar alliance system and the invasion of Poland is what sparked it, but um the it, it was you could you could say I know, the the value claim came later. World War II was not fought to stop the Holocaust. They didn't know it was happening at first. And then there were things they did that they they could have bombed the rail lines and so on and so forth. So uh, the moralizing around World War II is, some of it is uh, after the fact um, storytelling about what what really happened.
1: Yeah, and I think it is, like you can't 100% tease apart the um you know I don't know, I was talking to a historian friend about the US Civil War, the question of like, you know, who suits up for the North and who suits up for the South. It's like um for an individual soldier, a lot of that question is going to come down to values. And it's not explanatorily complete to just say it's all resources always when you're talking about modern nations and modern armies. But I think that the values part is often overstated because um, uh, it just makes a very splashy story um, and an exciting story to think of of values being the um, the main point of conflict,
0: yeah, and in the Civil war, I think the you know the main value the North was fighting for was was union, not abolishing slavery that came later, the, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was not till 1863, I believe, and, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is a very contested area of historiography. It's very
1: contested, it's very contested, but it's also, I mean, I think it's legitimately just too complicated to say the people who attribute it to, you know, to values are wrong, or that they're 100% right. Like, both of those claims, I think, um, like I wouldn't want to sign my name on either of those, um, and I think that that's why, like once you're actually talking about modern nations um you can't just say that the values are just a fairy tale and that they mean nothing. It's like they do mean something, they are part of the picture they're just not as big of a part of the picture as um our movies would claim uh-huh. and our books and you know. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's, I guess that's my, the last thing I wanted
0: to say. Uh, here's, here's one more question for you. Um, is there a movie of this type a good guys, bad guys story that's come out in the past couple of years that you've liked that you thought did a presented morally complex, you know, the moral complexity on both sides? Um, uh,
1: you know, I like, I like these movies. I've watched a ton of them, obviously. Um, I actually just think that the way I've been engaging with them um, means I don't have an answer to that question that is, like, satisfying. You know, like, I think that the there's some, like, really interesting stuff in Harry Potter. There's some really interesting stuff in the X-Men movies. Um, at the same time, I'm kind of just, like, and, like, where is this genre heading? What are we doing with this? Rather than, like, oh, this is so satisfying to my own moral feelings. You know, I think it's really interesting how, um, you know, the, the shift of the focus has gone in, in many of them from, like, the big battle that you were talking about to sort of a slow accretion of powers that goes along with learning moral things. Like, Harry slowly learns how to be a good friend and be a good, you know, son good student and whatever and that's how he sort of slowly gets his powers and you know you have a similar thing and uh, Twilight is another one where she like slowly gets her powers as she slowly kind of like learns all the lessons she needs to learn and and that's another thing that you see in um, X-men and um, I don't know I, I think it's interesting um, I think there's a lot of there's like a lot of storytelling heft. Um, I just think that it may also be um, like we're we're kind of training ourselves to be worse people. <laughs> watch these movies too
0: much. Um, that's a down note to end on. I, I just since you mentioned X Men, it made me think X Men was kind of the obsession. Uh, my session age like eleven to fourteen, and um, so the big X Men villain is Magneto. And Magneto, in the comics and in the movies, they, they, with the way they reboot these so often, they're going to have to stop doing this. But originally, he's a Holocaust survivor. And um, he goes on to form his supervillain group, uh, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So he's one of the few people who's explicitly saying we are evil um, because he is so disgusted by what uh, man does to man as um he experienced during that's world right. war people II. who
1: don't forgive every single atrocity are bad The right. people who hold people accountable that that's like an evil thing to say, I don't forgive.
0: Right. And it, it was in some ways, um, written as, or at least came to be viewed as, uh, the X-Men characters were kind of, um, parable for the civil rights movement. And, um, Magneto was Malcolm X and Professor Xavier, somewhat confusingly was Martin Luther King. Um, So yeah, but Magneto is an interesting, compelling character who never, I mean, comic books go on so long, and they're always throwing new curveballs. So I'm sure Magneto was a good guy for some length of time. But um, He's been a
1: good guy. Like there have been there have been parts where like I weren't there even comic books where he was actually leading the school when Professor X was
0: Oh maybe I like, stopped reading it
1: <laughs> at that okay. point. No, I actually I I'm definitely gonna get like somebody's gonna get angry on me Twitter. Um but
0: that yeah that that the X Men are an interesting um parallel that maybe I could think about some more. Um so Catherine, if people wanna find out more find out more about your work, where where can they look?
1: Oh, more about my work in general. Um, well, very soon, I hope I'll have a website. I should really have a website. Um, like, a lot of my other essays have been on Jezebel. Um, I don't know. Like
0: <laughs>
1: and, and you're, you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I am on Twitter at CLNichols6. That's my Twitter handle.
0: Um, so you should follow Catherine. Um, you should follow me as well, A-R-Y-E-H-C-W, on Twitter, Um, you, if you like meaning of life TV, you can subscribe in on YouTube to our YouTube channel, or you can um, subscribe in the iTunes store or Google play or wherever you get podcasts, you can subscribe to meaning of life. And if you like meaning of life, you can rate meaning of life, in the iTunes store, which is helps, uh, you know, the algorithm suggest meaning of life to more people and we'll get more people, uh, hooked on the great content here. Uh, so, Catherine, th- thanks so much for coming out. This is a very interesting discussion.
1: Yeah, thanks so much.
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page, at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.